Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I speak to Lindsay McGoy, Professor of Sociology at the University of Essex and author of The Unknowers, How Strategic Ignorance Rules the World, and No Such Thing as a Free Gift, The Gates Foundation and the Price of Philanthropy. We discuss how politicians make strategic use of ignorance and uncertainty, the difference between ignorance and deliberate misinformation, and why, if knowledge is power, then ignorance may be too. Thank you so much to all our amazing patrons who make the show possible. If you want access to the full hour-long episode of this show, as well as full-length interviews with previous guests like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornell West, then support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash pod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favourite episodes on social media tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers who've let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. And now here is Lindsay McGoy explaining the idea of strategic ignorance. Hello, Lindsay McGoy, and thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. How are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. Thanks so much for having me on. Good. Uh, Thank you for being here. And I want you to just start by introducing this concept of strategic ignorance, which many people might see as a contradiction in terms. What is this concept and why did you see it as so important to write about it now? Strategic ignorance, which is sort of in the subtitle of my book, The Unknowers, How Strategic Ignorance Rules the World. It's a concept I've been working with for a number of years that sort of preceded the recent publication of this book and that I've been developing in some sort of earlier sociological articles. And how I define it is as a compounding or the exploitation or a mix of both of the unknowns in any situation in order to command various institutional, personal, or sort of corporate advantages. So rather than seeking to alleviate uncertainty or ignorance, people deliberately compound it in order to, say, evade liability for some sort of previous corporate form of harm to individuals or to the environment, to um, command future resources in future, to sort of at times hoard various resources or to suggest that you are the authority who should best deserve more resources to resolve a situation or to sort of deny blame for different types of injury in some way. So it's the exploitation of unknowns in order to command advantages. So what's the difference between strategic ignorance and just lying, which is obviously a favorite other pastime of a lot of our business leaders and politicians? Yeah, that's such an important question because there's definitely links between different forms of strategic ignorance and different forms of denialism, deception, or blatant lying of the type that we might see with um, with people like Donald Trump or even when it comes to the evasion of responsibility like we're seeing with people like Johnson and Patel when it comes to denying that their earlier whistleblowing when it came to the denunciations of taking the knee in say football matches could be at all linked to the propagation of more racism against black players and individuals in the United Kingdom, for example. So there are some clear links, but what I, what I suggest that strategic ignorance does 
is that through different procedures or mechanisms or efforts not to investigate different phenomena that is not in the interest of people to investigate, you actually can at times thwart the emergence of knowledge or facts from becoming clear to different groups in a way that actually precludes the need to then lie at all as an end result. So you actually foment the capacity to not have to lie by thwarting the emergence of inconvenient information from emerging in the first place. And it's important to note, too, strategic ignorance, it can be a corporate resource, it can be a, a resource of, of state governments who deliberately don't investigate wrongdoing in ways that allows them to then not have to answer for the consequences of that wrongdoing. But I also try to develop a sort of positive attitude to ignorance in some ways, and that I suggest that also ignorance can be a source of hope in that we don't know, for example, the positive ramifications of different types of political activism in a way, or we don't know the ramifications of trying to think of new state corporate configurations in a way that could lead to better distributive outcomes for some groups. So I'm not totally negative about the capacity of different forms of strategic ignorance to lead to positive outcomes as well. And that's why it's a bit different from deception or lying, because those are in ways usually wholly pernicious phenomena, but I try to develop a sort of positive sense of the unknown as well. And on the other side of the coin, so rather than kind of assuming that this is a deliberate kind of malicious attempt to lie, what's the difference between just strategic ignorance and something like uncertainty? So, you know, not just kind of there being a number of different possible outcomes from any one situation, but just the the fact that we live in a very complex world and a lot of the time it is just impossible to know what the outcome of any one particular action is going to be and often impossible to chart back from a particular event to a proximate cause. That, that's such an important and really uh, well-faced question because especially at a time like the COVID pandemic, we really need to rehabilitate a space for allowing the value of uncertainty to flourish in a sense so that you can counter, say, the assumptions of people who say, is there conclusive evidence from, say, a randomized controlled trial that masks always work to diminish the spread of COVID? Well, there's not been many or, you know, almost any RCTs conducted on this particular question. But that doesn't mean that we can't hypothesize that mask wearing will be valuable, for example. So science itself, rather than being always... Um, bolstered by the quest for certainty is actually valuable for having commitment to the need to admit uncertainty and to know that the quest for more scientific veracity does not mean that the truth always has to be a conclusive, ironclad, incontestable truth, but actually is open to being falsified, which is that Popperian notion, which I think in many ways is very much true. It's a it's it's a not an absolute, but it's one criterion for what counts as a scientific fact. Is it open to being contested? And therefore, at its root, it might be in some levels uncertain. So there is value to uncertainty that I think political activists and progressive leftists, for example, um, need to be more comfortable with actually embracing in ways because that allows people to um, to admit that different dogmatic certainties on either the left or the right are not wanted and shouldn't be the ultimate goal. So 
when I talk about rehabilitating some of the positives of the unknown and ignorance, I'm also trying to create space for embracing the fact that uncertainty is a defining feature of scientific life and of social life in general, and we shouldn't see it in a exclusively negative lens. I think this is really interesting because I see a lot of what you're saying in, in the economics profession all the time. So on the one hand, the denial of uncertainty, the kind of neoclassical view that there is, you know, one possible future equilibrium outcome and agents are blessed with perfect information about the way that their decisions are going to play out and the kind of revolution that took place in economics or that actually really failed to take place in economics with Keynes and the post-Keynesian economists saying uncertainty means that you can't predict a lot of what's going to happen and that actually, you know, our societies are characterized by this fundamental complexity and uncertainty. And in trying to model these things, you are not just failing to look at the future in a particular way, for example, in a way that means you don't predict the financial crisis, you're actually creating certain kinds of future over others. But also when we talk about this idea of strategic ignorance, the construction of a discourse that is inherently and deliberately exclusionary and that seeks to actually discourage people from trying to get engaged with many of these ideas. You know, I'll go and talk to people about, you know, economics 101 and they'll say, I don't know anything about economics. It's too complicated. It's all about maths. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of wondering the extent to which these two things, kind of denial of uncertainty and the construction of very exclusive and deliberately like arcane ways of looking at the world go together? Yes, I think that's a really excellent question. And I think it's very true that the sort of neoclassical revolution that took place at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, where you saw new sort of maxims of income distribution become entrenched in the teaching of, say, returns to labor or capital, when this happened, it began to really displace a lot of the earlier uncertainty that people like classical political economists placed on whether the distribution to different economic factors of production were fair or not. So there was a lot of talk of fairness and undeserved rewards that people like Adam Smith wrote about that was largely sort of expelled from mainstream thought by the 20th century as a result of the neoclassical revolution in interesting ways, because as you put it, Keynes was very open to the reality of uncertainty. You know, I think there was a great quip he makes that I'll just do a, I'll butcher the paraphrase of it, but it's something like nothing is more foolhardy than a certain investment strategy in an uncertain world, right? Like the fact Mm -hmm. that we have to be open to the reality of future uncertainties affecting one's decision-making in the present. That was just an obvious point that he saw as only commonsensical. But interestingly, too, the Austrian school were also committed to the reality of uncertainty. People like Hayek and von Mies, who also contested the equilibrian view, but for different reasons than Keynes. But what's interesting is that they they deferred in their policy response to this recognition of the entrenched nature of uncertainty, whereas Keynes saw the need for extra state oversight of, say, the private supply of capital to avoid sort of the proliferation of rentier interests, especially in the finance world. Um, So he saw the need for a degree of state planning, uh, even if he wasn't committed to the notion that state planning is in itself a, a sort of panacea. Then you saw people like Hayek and von Mies insist that the markets, uh, information processing 
aptitude or capabilities was capable of better mitigating the problem of widespread ignorance than any state actor could be. And as you know, and you've written about so well, it was really the sort of Hayekians who won the day and whose theories and ideas largely prevailed when it came to really empowering different market actors to have uh, a lot more leeway to almost try to self-regulate in different ways in the post-1980s onward period. There's a really interesting route we could go down now, I guess, which might take us a bit off topic, but I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on it and looking at how both certainty and ignorance are deployed by different kinds of political projects as almost a kind of replacement for politics. So if you, as you just mentioned for Hayek, it's ignorance. It's, you know, the fact that there's an impossibility of a kind of, you know, bird's eye view of society that would allow a central planner to make all the right decisions. Mm-hmm. And actually the price mechanism is this incredible way of kind of, you know, pulling together our collective ignorance and turning it into a, you know, amazing social system that allows us to allocate resources. But equally, on the other hand, for the kind of capitalist state planners, the Keynesians, I guess, that uh, during the kind of heyday of social democracy genuinely believed in the capacity of the state. And let's bear in mind the capitalist state to centralize power and authority and use it to allocate resources, which I think is something that socialists today, even if we're often accused of kind of believing, actually, you know, we're much more of the view that people need to be given power over their own lives and economic and political democracy is at the heart of the the socialist project. So certainty and ignorance are deployed in both of those projects as facts of social life that displace politics. And yeah, I'm I'm just wondering about about your thoughts on that and how maybe like the repoliticization of knowledge Mm. and of the way that we make decisions is actually the only antidote to these two extreme things. I don't know if I've articulated that very well. well but you've, you've, I think you've done so perfectly. I think it's a really interesting point. And you're really getting at, I think, this binary attitude to state versus market-led economic solutions that we need to transcend in many ways, in many different experiences or places. A mixed approach is a far more sober and a far more realistic way to try to develop positive economic outcomes. And so as you sort of put it very aptly, with both Keynesianism and with this sort of market fundamentalism, there's this hope that you can almost dispel politics from the problem of developing better futures, that you can separate human decision-making from the vagaries of political partiality in a way. And actually, why was that ever seen as being a positive goal in the first place? Well, partly for the reality of the extremes of political decision-making in the mid-century that led to such horrendous outcomes when it came to war, genocide, and atrocious brutality. I think people, rightly so, were nervous about the brutality of political decision-makings, and they thought that the dream of independence from that might lead to a fairer world. There was a degree of utopianism in both the Keynesian let's defer decision-making to a state that has at least a democratic mandate to act in a certain way, or in the Hayekian response, let's defer decision-making to an entity that was equally upheld to be democratic in a sense, which is the sphere of the so-called open market. But of course, in both of those extreme sort of visions, there was a refusal, almost itself a strategic ignorance or blindness to the reality of the fact that Neither extreme was capable of creating the utopianism 
that its fiercest adherents might have hoped, because you can't eradicate politics from decision making, and nor should you want to, because that effort actually leads to a devaluing of the individual capacity to try to govern our lives in some way, to contribute to the making of a better future. And I'm, I'm not at all a, a Marxist thinker. I'm on the left, but I'm not a Marxist. But I do think that notion of species being and the contribution to create um, a, a, a sense of a, a universalist species being that he talked about being stripped from the workers as part of the problem of alienation is a very good point. And in different ways, the um, extremes of a market-based approach versus a sort of centralized state approach both seem to circumscribe or to constrain the space for individual contributions to the creation of a better notion of a species being in some sense. Moving on a bit now, there's presumably a link here between what you're talking about with this idea of strategic ignorance and the new favourite liberal villains of you know fake news and misinformation. These are often constructed as new problems in political discourse. But your argument is actually that the powerful have always had a much more opportunistic and strategic relationship with the truth than we might first admit. Yes, I think that's such a good point. So why do we presume that this problem of post-truth deception and lying is somehow new? And I think when you're of, say, for example, uh, my generation, I'm, I'm in my 40s and I lived through, you know, uh, I was in my undergrad when 9-11 hit and when later, even at the very time when 9-11 hit in 2001, there was a strong suspicion on the left that Iraq was in the sights of the US government and they would use this to somehow develop a pretext for invasion. And so when you saw all the lies that went on in the lead up to the 2003 invasion of Iraq, it is then very frustrating and difficult to have this perception emerge 20 years later that there's somehow something uniquely new about the deception and lying that goes on in the post-2016 period. So yes, Trump thrived from deception and lies, but so did uh, George Bush Jr., you know. So did Rumsfeld, who's just died. These, these were also actors committed to a sort of politics of deliberate manipulation of facts in order to create a, a public climate that would allow them to engage in egregious actions. And I think maybe for a slightly younger left generation, the same reality is seen, well, many of them also witnessed the atrocities of the lying that preceded the Iraq war, but they also saw the bailouts that happened post-2008, and that in some ways might have been necessary and justified, but were so, from a distribution perspective, geared towards enriching the super rich at the expense of the rest, that again, it was a situation where you saw a lot of um, gerrymandering of facts going on that was frustrating. So again, when you look at 2003 and the lies that went on then, 2008 to 2010, it, it's simply, it's a myth that there's anything new about the supposed novelty of the current post-truth era. Can you tell us about some of those historical examples of the strategic use of, of ignorance or misinformation by the powerful? Because you've got some really interesting examples in the book, um, just of the kind of mythologies, I suppose, that are produced by many, many different political projects and why we seem to forget these, these historical examples so easily. 
When it comes to historic examples of strategic ignorance, I think we can see them in every era, and um, there's nothing specific to the modern era which suggests that um, leaders are more prone to a sort of self-serving perception of their own, the benevolence of their rule. But I I mostly focus on the modern period, and and some things are obviously new, so the sheer capacity of communications to encompass the world in novel ways. Like, I really think that David Harvey's notion of time, space, instantiation, and compression is a very important one for understanding some of the realities of our current economic challenges, for example. So some things are clearly new to the modern era, and some of them are essentially just that we are progressing towards a better future, I think, on Earth. I think that's something new to the modern era, which is a sort of a type of teleological meliorism, the idea that we are inevitably better than earlier generations, that might be distinctive to the modern period because before sort of the idea of utopia on earth was not really a widespread phenomenon because so many people lived with a degree of religious faith that saw the idea of utopia as being something distinctive from earthly paradise, for example. So this modern belief that we are progressing to a better end is something that I think has been very much a part of the modern story. And it's propagated by people in different eras for different reasons. And I think, although some of it is not necessarily exclusively bad, that we should have the capacity to have a sort of positive betterment in mind as a political end for people to work towards. But the type of teleological thinking that suggests we currently have the best of all possible worlds is extremely dangerous and leads people to constantly sort of cherry pick statistics that show their own society in the best possible light. And in the book, I talk about the way that two key figures do this, and they are Bill Gates and Steven Pinker, who are what I call the sort of epitome of what I call status quo populists. These are people who do say, yes, we need to do some things to improve living standards, etc. But in general, both Gates and Pinker constantly cherry pit statistics, which show their own, what they see as the Western ideal to be the normatively best society on earth, because just look at how much living standards are improved in comparison to earlier eras. And in some ways, this is correct. I mean, they they pick statistics that are very hard to argue against. They pick what I call low-hanging fruit statistics, sort of easy metrics, like the fact that living standards overall and like longevity, for example, has improved in many regions. But just like a metric like GDP, which is only a metric of overall wealth, but doesn't show the distribution of wealth within that society, the metrics they choose often obscure realities as much as they reveal because they hide internal inequalities in the distribution of outcomes. So in general, in the modern period, one of the aspects of the secular project, I believe, is this insistence that if you place faith in humanity, you will lead potentially to positive progressions towards a better society as long as certain ideological attributes are sort of adhered to. And you see this, I think, Within socialist belief systems and capitalist ones, they tend to be what I call harmony ideologies, which they suggest that if only certain criteria are met, then we will have this sort of more idealized situation. 
in practice. But I think rather than always trying to embrace this seeming future harmonious possibility of an action, we need to look at the ways that that effort to create an inherence, a hopefulness towards a more positive outcome can lead both ideological systems to deny some of their shortcomings. So that leads people like Pinker and Gates to always ignore the problem of how in certain regions, longevity is declining or stagnating or reversing, or how differences in longevity, for example, are so racially and class-based in different regions and nations, or how GDP is a terrible metric that really obscures widening inequality in different nations. There's also a kind of inherent orientalism in that discourse, that kind of Pinker Gates discourse that you mentioned earlier. It's like life in the enlightened West is great because of the triumph of reason and liberalism. And it completely fails to account for the ways in which all, you know, our way of life is based on extraction from and exploitation of other parts of the world, as well as a kind of long-term project of formal colonialism and just the kind of refusal to accept or acknowledge those things is again an inherent part of, you know, there's a strategic ignorance in in that discourse itself. It's sort of a, a constant cheerleading for the enlightenment in ways that refuses to accept, you know, what the Frankfurt School described as the dialectic of the enlightenment, the fact that the capacities that make a nation superior when it comes to economic wealth often are dependent on different forms of brutality, exploitation, violence, and extraction, exactly as you say. And there's simply a constant neo-imperialist, colonialist blindness within the discourses of Pinker and Gates that simply will not look at the facts surrounding ongoing forms of neo-colonial domination and brutal extraction through a variety of means. I mean, sometimes there's just full-scale war and invasion, you know, like in the case of Iraq, which led to an opening up of reserves and and, uh, extraction in in newfound ways. There's people like Elon Musk saying, we will coup whoever we want, whenever we want, when it comes to U.S. power in the case of, say, lithium in Bolivia, where he's sort of, there's this naked, chest-thumping militarism that he is able to utter without people actually pointing out that this is, well, many people do point out that this is quite egregious, but still he has his followers who would see him as potentially more of a pacifist than, say, someone like Rumsfeld, who was upheld as the poster child for war during the Iraq era. So these people like Gates and Pinker or Musk, they manage to appear like humanitarians, even when they are actually lending their support to ongoing forms of neo-imperial Western domination in really unacceptable ways. And to actually argue against that, um, to point out that that's a fact, you have people like Gates saying, well, you're, you're evil because you're against the use of philanthropy to help the world's poorest. But it's not indifference that leads people to criticize philanthropy. It's recognition that the money that was accrued to have the surplus resources to invest in philanthropy was made through exploitative, extractive practices, which caused the poverty in other regions to begin with. 
This made me think about um, my guest last week who spoke about Empire because he's just written a a fantastic book about imperial nostalgia. And I asked him then about Ernst Renan's claim that the existence of a nation is just as much about a collective decision to forget certain things as it is to memorialise others. And I think this is so important. I mean, it's particularly obvious in the case of the UK where, you know, it becomes very easy to imagine ourselves as a kind of post-racial enlightened nation, contrary to all available evidence, whether it's about the treatment of footballers or Pretty Patel's, uh, you know, horrific policies towards immigrants or just, you know, the legacy of colonialism. But also in the US, right, where I always love Daniel Imawar's book, How to Hide an Empire, which actually talks about how, you know, America thinks of itself as a non-imperialist nation. And yet actually it engaged not just in you know, ongoing forms of neocolonialism, but actual active empire. So is that kind of collective decision to forget a form of collective strategic ignorance? Yes, I think this is um, such a good question and point. And really in these sections where I look at the sort of colonial erasure of past atrocities, none of my own argument empirically or theoretically in those sections is new. It's, it's completely drawing on the work of scholars like Charles Mills, who developed the notion of white ignorance, which points out that embedded in mainstream political philosophies of the social contract, for example, is the fact that this so-called social contract was always predicated on the dehumanizing of certain groups who were seen as not human or humane enough to be included within the protections of traditional sort of human rights as they were emerging in the Enlightenment period. So I draw on people like Cobain's work, The History Thieves, where he looks at, you know, the burning and the drowning of colonial records that show um, the sheer extent of colonial brutality. And that erasure perpetuates the ability of sort of colonial denialists today to pretend that the project was more humane and was more um, beneficial for oppressed and subjugated and exploited groups than it was like Nigel Bigger at the University of Oxford, for example, a theologian who's also a a key colonial denier of the extent of colonial atrocities. And so you see that in so many regions, and it's particularly notable in the United Kingdom today because you've got a record now of the erasure. You've got stronger knowledge of just how effortful the strategy to destroy colonial records was. But in places like the United States, I mean, you mentioned the great book, How to Hide an Empire. It's even more pernicious, this problem, because you didn't have a physical empire to the same extent. Yes, you did. And especially in the early 20th century, late 19th century, with the conquest of the Philippines and and, and elsewhere and ongoing, you know, physical colonization of Puerto Rico, for example. But you also have this sort of economic domination, which comes from the... Washington consensus sort of power to enforce different adherence to IMF and World Bank stipulations that really have very severe, clear, oppressive implications for the capacity of different nations to govern as they wish. So you have employment indices, for example, that are overseen by the World Bank, where countries are rated higher if they've got more lenient labor regulations in place. So let the foreign direct investment flow in because your corporate dollar will go further because workers are more exploited. That's the reality of what's happening, but it's covered by all sorts of doublespeak 
like changing the names of indices that talk about this type of foreign direct investment attractiveness of different nations in new ways whenever activists point out, well, this is egregious. You're actually rewarding companies for the more they favor countries that have the most lenient, flimsy labor regulations in place. So that's how the neo, I mean, as you well know, that's how the neo-imperialism happens today. But it's not as clear to people as physical occupation. So it's even harder to talk about and therefore even more instrumental in creating this collective strategic denial or strategic ignorance of the extent to which uh, the U.S. today is a force for really injurious economic activities globally. Another thing that um, I really thought about other than empire when reading your book was was climate breakdown. Um, and you mentioned a few kind of big corporate scandals in the book and the way that, you know, the senior leaders of those organizations feigned ignorance. I think one really fascinating example of, of what you're talking about was what we know now happened to ExxonMobil, where they had scientists in the 60s and 70s investigating this phenomenon of what they then called the greenhouse gas effect, found clear and compelling evidence that burning fossil fuels was contributing to it, and then responded by taking all the money that they had invested into these scientific programs out and instead increasing their um, donations to think tanks and organizations spreading climate denialism. And it wasn't just denialism saying climate breakdown isn't happening. It was that there was a, a lot of money that was spent strategically on casting doubt on various different kinds of assertions. So not saying there's definitely no chance that this is the case, but just we don't know whether or not there is this link, even though, you know, to a large extent they did. So why would we change the way our economy works based on kind of uncertain science? And it was like they saw it as more beneficial not for people fervently to believe that climate breakdown didn't exist, but just not to know whether or not it did. And there is a kind of ongoing attempt to do exactly the same thing today, which says, you know, fine, there may be this link that exists. We don't know how strong it is and we don't know if it's large enough to make it worthwhile changing the way our society works. So we should just kind of default to the status quo. This is exactly the reality of the political value of uncertainty that then flies against the earlier, I think, righteous, but still problematic efforts to get people more comfortable with uncertainty. Because the flip side of that is that uncertainty has been so economically advantageous to corporations when it comes to denying conclusive evidence of links between a particular product or extractive process and societal or environmental harm. And this is something that a lot of scholars have been writing about, and it's sort of grouped under the general term of agnotology, which is a, a term that Robert Proctor, a historian of science, came up with to describe the compounding of doubt that the tobacco industry really kind of perfected over the 50s and 60s between smoking and cancer and higher cancer rates, and eventually, finally, epidemiological evidence of just how clear the link was, was enough to overcome the tobacco company's efforts to exactly, as you put it, in the case of ExxonMobil, say, yes, there might be some evidence of harms, but there's not conclusive evidence. So it's all, almost like a type of filibuster science. That's actually another term that Proctor has used, filibuster science, where you try to keep talking, keep carrying out more studies, keep the discourse going so that it never conclusively proves a result in any particular way. 
Uh, and what what's true of the corporation in general is obviously true of the media in particular. And you wrote about this in your book. You talked about the phone hacking scandal. And you see a lot, particularly, again, in the British media, but I'm also sure that it happens in, in the US as well, of kind of liberal commentators chalking up repeated patterns of, say, you know, corruption to just accident, denying that there's a kind of grand plan going on and, and chalking that all up to kind of conspiracism. There was a tweet from Hugo Rifkind recently, which was very interesting about the British media. Spare me from the constant Twitter conspiracy theories about story X being released as a distraction from story Y. This never happens. It's chaos out there. Nobody is in charge of anything. Mm-hmm. I think that's just a fascinating reflection of this ideology. The idea that, you know, there's no order to the world and that any attempt to kind of um, link, say, the ownership of the British media with the kind of stories that are being put out by those news organisations is just conspiracism. And it's the same as 9-11 conspiracy theories or like all these kind of horrific things that are um, that are put out you know, often by the far right. It's such a good point. And that's a fascinating tweet. I mean, because that would be the case of someone with a position of uh, media platform, media exposure, media uh, recognition, popularity, essentially denying his own complicity in the sort of obscuring of different forms of corruption amongst political elites. And I mean, you see this same thing um, often at the BBC, where it's this sort of just doing my job, sir or ma'am, just reporting the facts without without trying to look more deeply at how this sort of pretense of helplessness or incapacity to be able to connect the dots is upheld as a somehow a reality of social life and especially of the increased complexity of very digitalized lives where you know data is accumulated and stored and deployed in so many ever proliferating ways and essentially interestingly you know that really accords with the notion of the market fundamentalist panacea, which is that no one is themselves responsible or has the omniscient capacity to understand different forms of information that are submerged within individuals, let alone accessible to all. So let's let the market even out any asymmetries in power or knowledge. But that pretense of a lack of efficacy or a lack of a contribution to the disorder is, is just that. It is a pretense. It is a sort of denial of differential power levels and status levels and resource levels that different agents have. And yes, no one person is responsible for different forms of disorder, but different entities and actors have more power than others. The sun is an enormously extensively red resource, even though it's a money-losing outlet for the Murdoch empire. There's a lot of you know, I saw I, I saw the reliance on the sun when I, I lived for a period in, in Essex and sort of people did read it daily and trust a lot of its pronouncements. And when you look at how who the tabloid backs politically usually has been the incumbent sort of elected leader over the past 30 year period, you can see that different media sources do have more of an impact than others. And to deny that different actors have disproportionate power is simply an abdication of responsibility and really a obfuscation of reality. 
you'll often hear people talk about how knowledge is power, right? This is a kind of favorite colloquialism and that the powerful are therefore much more likely to know things. And this is reflected in a, a widespread you know, view that we'll see repeated on lots of occasions, including recently at the football, that ignorance and a lot of other vices are something that's confined to the poor and the powerless. But actually, your argument is that ignorance is a form of power too, and it's often one that is actually deployed much more successfully by, as you just said, those, you know, in positions of power and influence. So, you know, how can we like think about and talk about ignorance in a way that doesn't just go into reinforcing these tropes about uneducated working class people versus basically kind of benevolent, enlightened dictators? When you have control of different political processes, when you have a mandate to govern, you are in many ways given a license not to know things that is not in your advantage to know. So if you look at the Windrush compensation scheme, for example, there was a news report that Priti Patel, her office had stopped counting the number of people who had died while waiting for compensation. So who were never um, received any sort of reparation for the wrong that they suffered And if you stop counting that number, then ultimately you have an absence surrounding how many people were disadvantaged in that way. And it's in the power of a place like the Home Office to legally stop counting if they wish. Now, there could be pushback, there can be media outrage or censure, which might lead to a reversal of that decision. But if there's no media censure, it will ultimately be allowed to transpire largely unchallenged. And that type of creation of unknowns is another type of way that the powerful are reliant on trying to foment sort of a lacuna of knowledge surrounding just how harmful they are to different groups. And so to answer, you know, your question is a very important one, I think, because in the social sciences in general, there is a bias towards presuming that knowledge is powerful. And there is a bias towards presuming that the hierarchy of ignorance tends to mean that the direction of ignorance is from the poor having more ignorance than the powerful. And my two aims are to point out that, yes, in some cases, knowledge is power, but so is ignorance. And once you recognize that, you see that people at the top of social hierarchies in ladders are often what I describe as more ignorant than others because they have more to lose often from acknowledging the way that their power harms other more marginalized groups. Thank you so much, Lindsay McGoy, for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to chat with you. Try.